When your soul's on trial And I did have help But I still outplayed all the cards I was dealt And when the going got tough It's the man in the mirror who I caught when he fell And when the judgment day comes It's no place you could run Either heaven or it's hell So get your alibi straight When your soul's on fire When your soul's on fire A couple people said I should probably stay in my lane Stick to where I'm good But I'm good at too many things Cold man got more lanes than LA highways. So like Sinatra, I had to have it my way. The track you just heard is an excerpt from my brand new album, Amor Fatih. You may remember the music videos I put out last year, Blasphemy, Straight A's, and Forward. This new album features all three of those singles plus seven brand new songs. Now I put my all into this project and it's a real representation of my passion for music. So if you want to listen to the whole thing, click in the description or search Cold X Man on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to music. Now back to the podcast. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Nita Farahani. Nita is a professor of law and philosophy at Duke Law School. She's the founding director of the Duke Science and Society. She is the faculty chair of the Duke MA in Bioethics and Science Policy and principal investigator at SLAP Lab. In 2010, she was appointed by President Obama to the Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues, where she served until 2017. She's an appointed member of the National Advisory Council for the National Institute for Neurological Disease and Stroke, and she is a past president of the International Neuroethics Society, and that is only a small slice of her bio. The topic of this conversation is mind reading, and I don't mean trying to guess what's in somebody's head. I mean actual technology that scans your brain and reliably conveys what you are thinking or feeling. Now, this seemed like science fiction to me, but Nita convinced me in this conversation that this technology is already here, and there are a host of ethical questions relating to privacy and other things. So we talk about how EEG scans can give us information about our mind. We talk about the relationship between EEG scans and classical questions in the philosophy of mind, such as consciousness, uh, as well as free will. We talk about uses of mind-reading technology in criminal investigations, which has already happened. We talk about current uses of mind-reading tech in Chinese factories, and yes, that is already happening too. We talk about tattoos that can pick up your brain activity, and once again, that already exists. We talk about the combination of artificial intelligence and mind-reading tech and what that promises for the future. We talk about how biometric and facial recognition tech is being used by airport security. We talk about whether excellent liars would be able to pass mind-reading technology. And we talk about how mind-reading tech has even been used to tell whether couples are in love. Like I said, I went into this conversation skeptical that we ever develop great mind-reading tech and left basically convinced that mind-reading tech is already here in some ways and is certainly one of the most important and potentially dangerous areas of innovation in the world right now. So I really hope you enjoy this one. Without further ado, Nita Farahani. Okay, Nita Farahani, so good to be with you. Thanks for doing my show. Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. So we were just talking about your background a little bit and how you avoided philosophy (laughs) as a younger person and have later came to it in your PhD and you have a neuroscience and genetics background too. So before we get to your book, The Battle for Your Brain, which will be out by the time this podcast comes out, can you summarize your background a little bit in science, philosophy, neuroscience, genetics, et cetera? Sure. Um, so I started with a real passion in science and thought that I was going to go to medical school, largely because 
if I thought you were interested in science, that's what you do is you go to medical school. So I was pre-med and undergrad at Dartmouth. And I actually had a government minor while I was there because I was very much interested in policy issues. I was also on the policy debate team, but I intentionally avoided philosophy, mostly because all of them were on it. And I thought, no, 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 I'm I'm in like the real area. I'm in the science, like the, Mm -hmm. the hardcore area. And yet every internship I took, every thing that I did suggested I was much more interested in the philosophical issues Mm. that uh, arise with scientific developments. So I took some time off after college, did some strategy consulting as one does after uh, most of like these liberal arts colleges and you don't know what you want to be when you grow up. And um, and it was during that time that I started to do master's work, figuring out what I was going to do for grad school. So I did a master's in biology, focusing on neuroscience and behavioral genetics, and then decided to apply to grad school uh, after that and did a combined JD, ultimately PhD in philosophy, largely because I went to school to study the intersection of behavioral genetics, neuroscience, and criminal law. Um, so went very much with the intention in place that that's really what I wanted to explore. And then here I am. All right. So the the topic of this conversation is essentially mind reading. And the two aspects of your background neatly parallel the two major components that I want to discuss. One is, is mind reading possible in principle Are we going to develop the technology to get there in our lifetime? And if so, what paths actually promise to get to that end zone in in terms of having technology that can actually read your mind? And then second half is assuming we can, what are the ethical implications of real mind reading technology? So I want to start on the first half. Do you think it's possible in principle to have mind reading technology? What would that actually look like? And do you think we're going to get there anytime soon? This, as a fellow philosopher, raises questions about what is the mind, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And what counts as mind reading? So can we already decode some of what's in your brain? Yes. And does that include things that people would say is their mind? Like if they're happy or sad or frustrated or angry or tired, the answer is yes, we can decode most of those brain states already. Um, If what you mean by mind reading is literally like the inner monologue that you're having or the inner like visual images that you have when you're in a moment of self-contemplation and self-reflection, I think the answer is probably in our lifetime, we're going to be able to do that. But the question is with what technology and what I wrote the book about really focuses on technology that's here today, which is consumer technology, wearable devices for mind reading. And those wearable devices for mind reading are probably never going to get to the level of depth of being able to really like decode your inner monologue. Um, But they're going to get some pretty good approximations of mind reading and certainly already can get some decent approximations of basic things that are in your mind. So what is an EEG? When you and I think, when anyone thinks, they have neurons that are firing in their brain. These are the cells that fire and they give off tiny electrical discharges when they do so. When we have different emotional states or cognitive states, like you're tired, you're happy, you're excited, you're bored, you have hundreds of thousands of neurons that are firing at once. And those happen in characteristic patterns and they give off characteristic 
patterns of electrical discharge. And you have different, what we call brain waves, different rates at which those electrical activity can be picked up. EEG, electroencephalography, is a way of picking up that electrical activity from your brain. So they're basically just sensors. Most people who, have, who think about EEG think about these big medical caps that are in hospitals where there's 128 sensors. And it's like this giant cap you put on with a bunch of gel over your head with all these wires coming off of it. That's clinical grade kind of old school EEG. And when I'm talking about EEG for the masses, what I'm talking about are little brain sensors. So they're tiny electrodes that are embedded in things like earbuds or headphones or tiny wearable tattoos that are worn behind the ear, the kind of previous so generation. So something that small be able to detect the EEG signal of your whole brain? It can pick up enough to do what it is that you're trying to do task specific, right? Mm. So, so the more electrodes in different spots on your skull, the more signal you're going to be able to pick up from different regions of your brain. And most of these headsets, when people are wearing them, you're averaging information from different spots mm -hmm. across the brain. Um, so it's not necessarily the case that more is always better, but having different placement across the skull can give you more information than you would get if you just have like a couple behind your ear or one in each ear, for example. So there's an old debate in philosophy. And I remember Hillary Putnam had some seminal paper on this. This is reaching a few years back uh, in, in my memory about whether mind states are synonymous with brain states. This is something that uh, used to be a, a very live debate in philosophy, which is to say, is a state of my mind just synonymous with a state of my brain? So, you know, listeners to this podcast might take that for granted as being obvious. Like, of course, if, you know, everything going on in my mind, is it has a direct one-to-one -one correlation with something going on in my brain and the mind is what the brain is doing. But historically, you know, most human beings throughout history haven't taken that for granted or believed that that's a very modern notion. Many have believed that uh, a mind can be an effect of the soul or of some mm -hmm. other material. So in the past, this has been a big question in philosophy and in analytic philosophy with the advent of EEG technology, is this is this going to move from the realm of a question for philosophers to debate to a question for scientists to just test? Is this going to be answerable by empirical analysis? So it's, I mean, there's so many different levels on which we could take that issue, right? We take it from the philosophical perspective of like, is it possible to have a non-material soul that acts on a physical body, right? A non-physical emergent property that somehow is able to act on matter. So far, we haven't found any way in which those things could happen. And maybe, right, even if every thought you have has a physical correlate in the brain that we can detect and map, that doesn't exclude the possibility that there is also some metaphysical soul that exists and that departs when a person dies, for example, or something like that. These things are not mutually exclusive. I think the question from a neuroscientific perspective is... Twofold. One is, can you find neural correlates of consciousness, for example, consciousness being the kind of mental experience of being and um, being awake and being able to self-reflect? And then the second is your thoughts, 
the images in your mind, your feelings, your experiences, can those be decoded from the physical firing of neurons in your brain or the blood flow in your brain, right? It doesn't have to be just through EEG. There are other ways of picking up brain activity. And so far, the answer seems to be yes, mm. right? Even when somebody's dreaming, for example, the ability to use, you know, more complicated neurotechnology, kind of bigger technology that can look more deeply into the brain, even the visual imagery in the brain as a person has been dreaming has been able to be decoded and um, kind of recreated in, in visual images that we can look at on a computer screen. Is that the full experience of being, right? Is that the full experience of thought that we've decoded? Maybe not, right? But is it enough that it gets at a whole lot of what a person would think of as their mind and their experience of self? I think so. So let's dwell on that neural correlative consciousness point. This is something that's very interesting to me. From my point of view, we have this fundamental mystery of why it is that a brain, which we believe is a set of cells arranged a certain way, which we believe is at bottom, a set of atoms and subatomic particles arranged a certain way. Why it is that a brain produces this fact of conscious experience in addition to the mere processes it does, right? Mm -hmm. A computer can play chess. My brain can play chess. A computer can, you know, speak words. Increasingly, ChatGPT can sort of understand and create sentences. Uh, so can my brain. But my brain has this extra thing which is that it feels like something to be the brain. There's something that it's like to inhabit this as well as I assume it is for you and for everyone else listening. So there's long been th this idea in the philosophy of consciousness that there may be neural correlates of consciousness, which is to say things in your brain that correlate with the fact of conscious experience. So with an EEG, presumably you could find what the brain looks like when it's conscious and what it looks like when it's not. Or you could look at the processes that are conscious, such as me speaking right now, and differentiate those from the processes that are unconscious, like my experience of my food digesting right now. I have no idea whether that's happening. You have as much idea as I do about what's going on in my spleen right now, for example. Yet those processes are also governed by my brain at some level. So there's been, there's been this idea that we can learn something about what causes consciousness by looking at the neural correlates of consciousness, which is interesting, but I've always been skeptical of it on one level, because even if we found the perfect pattern of when, you know, what brain regions and light up and what they look like when I'm conscious, that wouldn't really feel like an explanation of like why certain atoms produce experience and certain sure. firings don't. So would you agree with that? Or do you think we're going to find something deep about consciousness from this tech? You know, I, um, I said a moment ago that it's not mutually exclusive, mm. right? In the sense that, um, you know, in philosophy, there's, there's been this idea of this qualia, right? There's mm -hmm. something about consciousness that's different, that consciousness is an emergent property, right? That you can't reduce it just to the firing of neurons in your brain, that there's something that is bigger than the pieces, right? That it comes together to form something that might be much more difficult to quantify. I'll tell you on a different related area where this has been vexing for me on a couple of different fronts. So one is right now I'm a commissioner to something called the Uniform Laws Commission. And the Uniform Laws Commission uh, has delegates from 
all of the states, and they take on projects to try to develop uniform laws across the United States that are model laws that can then be adopted. And one of those laws that is one of its more successful laws is the Uniform Determination of Death Act. And there's two parts to that. The second part of it is death by neurologic criteria or brain death, as it's been commonly known. And there's been a very long debate about brain death since it was adopted in the United States and continues today, tied up in this question of what does it actually mean, right? What does brain death mean? Is it the loss of consciousness together with the loss of all functions of the entire brain? Is the loss of consciousness death? Is that human death? And how would you even measure it if you could truly find it, right? Because maybe, as you said, you can see patterns of it in firings of EEG or patterns of it in fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging, which are big machines that we've used to try to test consciousness. We've seen it also in the creation of these little brain organoids that are human brain cells that have been developed and have started to show patterns that look like consciousness. We have the same question of like, would we know if AI was conscious if we saw it? EEG and consumer wearables is not going to solve this problem for us, right? These are big questions about the universe and and the meaning of brains and the meaning of hu- like human life and experience and existence. What we will see are what the kind of patterns that correlate with a state called consciousness is and the loss of it. And it's much easier to see the loss of it in a being that we know has had consciousness. So humans have had consciousness, they lose it, they have no firing of neurons in their brain anymore. You see the patterns that correlate with the loss of consciousness, but that still doesn't answer for us what consciousness is, why we have it, how it emerged, how we lose it, what the meaning of it is. So let's talk about the how realistic it it's it looks to have this kind of mind reading, whatever that means, tech. I'm always astounded by the way in which certain problems seem easy to solve, but are extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. And other problems seem extremely difficult and end up being rather easy. So the example I've used before is like putting a man on the moon as opposed to solving the common cough. So like (laughs) last year, I've told this story once before, I think, but last year I just had a cough that just would not go away for like six weeks. And I went to the doctor. I was like, look, give me anything modern medicine has. I have a simple cough. I'm a podcaster. I need my voice, right? And he puts me in an x-ray machine, asked me a bunch of questions. And he said, well, I diagnose you with the common cough. Go home and drink tea until it goes away. And I was like, no, give me every drug that works. He gave me every drug. It did nothing, right? And I just drank tea and it went away. Within in time. A, yeah, in time, right? So, which led me to the true fact that we have not reliably cured the common cough. And even things like like dextromethorphan, uh, like Robitussin and stuff, they don't yeah. actually work as well as as advertised um, for a lot of people. At least for certain coughs. For certain coughs, yeah. And yet we put a man on the moon and chat GPT and any number of insane technologies that I can't explain to you how they work because they're so complicated. So this always interests me because when I think of technology involving the human body, it turns out some problems are just way easier than they seem and some are, are way harder than they seem. And problems involving the human brain for whatever reason, and this is just a gut feeling for me, strike me as like wicked problems, like hard problems and like things that might take 500 more years to solve than we thought, kind of like carrying the common cough. So at first blush, I'm kind of skeptical of the notion that like we humans will figure out the brain well enough to know like this thought means X or this firing means he's thinking this. You clearly so, have never tried one of these. Have you? Have no, you never, I, I never have. I never yeah. have. So 
All right. I should have, I should have brought you one to try out. Well, so first let me say, yeah, I think there are some aspects, like there's so much happening in the human brain, right? And there are some problems that we're not going to solve probably anytime soon, but there are some problems that we're going to solve. Like it's another organ in our body, just like our hearts, right? Just like other organs that we quantify all day, every day. And the idea that there's something so special and so unique about the organ that we can never figure out where speech comes from, where movement comes from, where your feelings are represented in your brain. That to me, I think, takes a kind of hopelessness about the brain that we don't need to take because it turns out that all those other advances that you were talking about, including generative AI and chat GPT, have led to seismic advances in how much we can actually decode from the human brain. There will still be some things we can't for a while, maybe within our lifetime too, right? So we we may not solve Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, even if we have some better treatments, we may not solve all depression. We may not understand every cause of mental illness and, you know, mental suffering in the human brain in our lifetime. But that doesn't mean there isn't a lot we can't already decode and reliably decode. And with something like generative AI, which can be trained on your unique brain patterns and then generate unique experiences for you, like you're feeling joy here's your favorite song. You're feeling stressed. Here's the song that generally chills you out. And then see those changes in your brain as your brain waves that indicate stress come down and your brain waves that indicate relaxation and meditation come up. Like that's already possible today. And so I think it's, you know, there are hard problems. Maybe you're imagining the hardest problems in brain and mind reading, but we can already do a lot today. And even the fact that there's now miniaturization of brain sensors that can pick up a whole bunch of brain activity and really sophisticated algorithms that have been trained on millions of data sets of brain activity and can actually decode what much of that means. You know, one of the things that that most people who have read the book so far, even neuroscientists are startled by is how many concrete real world examples I use about what we are already doing, Mm -hmm. what we are already capable of doing and the accuracy of those things. I'm not claiming your inner monologue and your complex thoughts with a couple of surface electrodes can be decoded reliably. But your intention to communicate speech, like your intention to type and your intention to speak, that's getting better every day at being able to pick that up. And that's a little different, right? So it's there's lots of things that happen in our brain. Mm-hmm. Some of them are intentionally communicated speech. Some of them are inner my- monologues that we have. Some of them are kind of fantasies and biases. Some of them are emotions. Will we decode absolutely everything about the human experience within the next 10 years? No. Will we decode a whole lot more from the human brain, just like we have discovered so much more from other organs? Yes. So your comment about um, being able to detect intentions reminds me of the Labet experiment. Yeah. Yeah, the Benjamin Labet experiment, which some people have criticized. But can you describe what that experiment classically was seemed to have found and what how it relates to free will and um, how this tech in general relates to our picture of ourselves as conscious creatures that choose to do things when we choose them? Sure. So you'll correct me if I get some of it wrong, because mm-hmm. now you're making me reach back and just yeah. have my, my memory of this. Yeah. I did write about Benjamin Lewis experiments a number of years ago, and it, it's relevant. To no, some it's of been that. a few years for me, too, actually, um, so... Well, we'll, so, we'll come so, to it together. <laughs> so we'll, we'll stumble there and yeah. get there. But the basic idea was this, which was he had in front of people a left click button and a right click button. And he said, whenever you feel the urge to press the left or right click button, take note of the time. 
right? And then go ahead and like click the left and right click button. All the while he was measuring brain activity through, I think it was EEG that he was using to pick up. And he was looking for something called the event related potential, the ERP, which is the moment at which your brain registers the intention to move versus when you consciously recognize the intention to move. And what he found consistently, I think it was 200 to 400 milliseconds before people recognize the intention to press the left click button or the right click button, the conscious experience of choosing that the brain registered choice before that. And the idea was that, you know, the conscious brain Um, I mean, there's been lots of interpretations of this, right? Which is like we backward rationalize a choice the brain has already made. um, And conscious experience is really just, you know, kind of trick, uh, an evolutionary trick where we think or experience real free choice, but actually the choice has already been made. You know, other arguments are, you know, there's a process and that process is like an automatic process that then gives rise to consciousness and there's a gap between them. But a lot of that experiment, that kind of pre-conscious signaling has been used, like when I say we can decode a lot of what you're thinking, that recognition memory or, you know, kind of now it's P300 or N400, these early pre-conscious signals can be picked up reliably from the brain. They're used for all kinds of things from criminal interrogations to trying to figure out, you know, whether a person experiences congruence between two facts. Like if I, you know, were to say listing all of the prior guests you've had on the show Mm -hmm. and looked at your brain as I was naming each of them to see if there was recognition of the name without you telling me whether or not they'd been on the show, but I'm just testing for recognition and I'm only using names, you know, that are not in the general public that you don't otherwise know. They're just people that you might recognize from having on the show. I could look at your brain activity to figure out recognition of those names. Like, yes, that is, or yes, that isn't. Or N400 would would give me congruence. Would that be like a lie detector test? Kind of. I mean, people have called it a lie detector test. What Um, would be the significance of a mismatch between my brain recognition and my saying the name? Well, you might not want to tell me, right? If I want to interrogate your brain now, I mean, I've given you an example of like you have, this is public information, right? But like you're a criminal suspect. the, the, The episode I recorded with Jeffrey Epstein that I never released Yes. The and then I find out. I did with yes. Harvey Weinstein. Yes. All of that. Right. Exactly. <laughs> or, I can find that out, you know, or even that where you just said the friendly interview with right. Weinstein. Right. Right. Those two things in your brain. I'm hoping. Register, that's a joke, Internet. Register incongruence. Like, yeah. No, that's right. right. I am so like there's no. There's no level of obvious joke that I can make. You are right. I, I, my my a recent presentation of mine went absolutely viral, um, which was a dystopian portion of the introduction to my book, which taken out of context, everybody thought that I was advocating for like neural surveillance of the masses. No, quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. It was like, here's the dystopia. Right. But yes, things can be taken out of context quite easily. But no, so that idea would register undoubtedly in your brain is incongruent. Mm. Weinstein and like good guy, right? And you could do that. I could test a whole bunch of pairings like that in front of you to see what your brain registers as being congruent, like those two things go together or those two things do not go together. And then look at how your brain reacts to different pieces of information to even find out, for example, like where did you bury the body, right? In the lake, in the woods, mm-hmm. and right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you're a criminal suspect. So it's a, it's not quite lie detection, right? But what it is, is probing your brain for memories and information. I see. So, so how would that practically be used in a criminal situation. It already has been. So the P300, not the N400, the N400, as far as I'm aware, is largely under development by places like DARPA, the Defensive mm-hmm. Advanced Research Projects Agency. So 
P300, uh, there's a guy by the name of Larry Farwell, which I write about in The Battle for Your Brain, about how more than a couple of decades ago, he took early research like the Libet experiment that we were talking about. And he was curious as to whether or not those kind of pre-conscious signals could be used to interrogate a criminal suspect or, you know, a national security interest, you know, kind of interrogation for information in their brain. And so what he wanted to do was to test for recognition of information that only the person who did the crime would know. Mm. So like you go through police files and there are facts that haven't been released to the public. Nobody should know about it except somebody who actually investigated the crime or somebody who committed the crime or was somehow involved in the crime, right? It wouldn't tell you they committed it. They could have been a witness to the crime, for example. And so he developed a series of probes, questions that would be based on those files and then would fit a person with an EEG helmet or hat or you know, sensors, and then show them a series of images or words on a computer screen, and then measure to see whether or not they showed the recognition, or if they didn't show the recognition through the P300 wave that you would detect, that early pre-conscious signal in the brain. And he was like on the cover of Time Magazine, the CIA, and a whole bunch of other, you know, DOD put huge amounts of investments into it. It was used in a number of criminal cases. And since then, he sold the technology to a company called Brainwave Sciences. Michael Flynn was on the board of it, mm-hmm. together with, a, I think, X, maybe Soviet spy, like a KGB spy or something. Anyway, they, they sold the technology and are still selling the technology, as far as I'm aware, to a bunch of governments around the world who are reportedly using it. India does brain interrogation in Dubai. So how reliable is that recognition? Like this is this is not quite a lie detector test, but it can imply that you're lying because if you recognize a picture from a crime scene, then if you had no other way of being there, how reliable is that recognition signal? Is it 100%? Is it 90%? Is it 50%? So there's a lot of controversy over that very question with not how reliable the signal is, but how easily you can recreate or validate what he's doing. Mm-hmm. So the, the science, which is that there is recognition memory, is very reliable, like high 90s reliable for that is an accurate signal of recognition. The question is the creation of the probe. So that's more art than it is science. And so a lot of people, when they've tried to scientifically reproduce the results that someone like Farwell has done, have a harder time reproducing the results because it's hard to accurately make sure that there's no other reason that you recognize the information, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, so for example, if I were to try to see if you recognize past people that you've hosted, you would recognize a bunch of names, not because you've had them on your show, but just because you recognize the names. And so what does that really tell me that I see recognition in your brain? But if you really get an excellent probe and you get down to the place where what you have is facts that truly nobody else should know, Mm -hmm. it's an accurate signal of recognition. What you do with that, whether or not you could actually, you know, kind of take that to the bank, I think that's more controversial. Yeah. So, I mean, we have this principle in law of of letting 10 guilty people go free rather than putting one innocent person in prison. I don't think that principle has necessarily actually been lived up to. And there are things like the Innocence Project, which are often finding out just how many innocent people have been put behind bars, especially for crimes like rape. But yeah, it seems like presumably this technology would, if it were in the high 99 percentile accuracy It would really call on us to potentially make that kind of evidence admissible in court. And it could actually potentially solve, especially these crimes where there often isn't evidence outside of what's known by the two people 
involved, the the criminal and the the alleged victim, right? So would this have uh, implications for for say rape cases? It could, uh, you know, brain based interrogation. The idea that there may be information in your brain, especially from kind of pre-conscious signals, things that you can't necessarily control or manipulate or change. You know, as I said, they're already being used, police departments worldwide. There's, you know, even in Japan, a widespread uh, technology that's used and test that's used is called the concealed information test. The idea that you really can probe a person's brain and get some accuracy, some truth, especially in cases where you have, you know, they said, they said, and Mm -hmm. and rape cases where it can be so incredibly difficult to base it on credibility. And those credibility determinations are oftentimes flawed and biased and juror determinations of credibility don't track to truth necessarily, right? They may track to pre-existing biases or commitments that they have or, or beliefs that they have. And so maybe... If we got to a point where it was incredibly accurate, you may be able to resolve some of the hard cases, whether or not that's a good thing to do, whether that would be ethical, whether the benefit to society of being able to adjudicate those cases outweighs the risk of giving government access to brains to interrogate. That's, I think, a different question. And, Mm. you know, I'd say for me personally, I think it's a dangerous road to go down, which is to give government access to brain interrogation. And I think that the effect on freedom of thought and the chilling risks when used by authoritarian governments makes it a problematic technology to say that's a good way to get evidence. Right. I mean, I, I think in um, in wartime, we often find even in America, which is, which is a country with notoriously, famously strong protections for individual rights, in wartime, you know, we found that our phones were being tapped by the government. And when the government feels, even even an American government, a, a government with constitutional disinclinations to do this, when it feels it's in an emergency, it will seize basically whatever technology. It will try to seize whatever te- technology is available to intrude on people's privacy and get more information and do things under the table that then journalists will, whistleblowers will leak years after the fact. So I would predict even if even in a country like America that this kind of technology could be used. At the same time, you've given examples of it already being used um, in in other countries with which have less of a protection on individual rights and individual privacy. Um, You've also given the example of it being used in a in a factory in China. I think it was a a, was it an electric car factory in China where yeah, yeah, several where you have basically hundreds of workers hooked up to EEGs to monitor their productivity, presumably if their if their brain signals correlate with whatever laziness looks like, then that information is fed to the boss. And, and yeah. um, this is like truly dystopian stuff. So I guess my question is, what do you think, what conversation do you think we need to be having in order to minimize or prevent the worst possible uses of this technology by authoritarian regimes and I would say major corporations as well. Definitely major corporations as well. I mean, I worry about the commodification of the brain. I worry about the misuse of this in the workplace. I worry about the misuse of it in schools and in everyday settings and the normalization of neural surveillance. You know, I think a starting place is people have to start to set aside their skepticism about the technology. And I don't mean that to say, set it aside and embrace the technology. I mean, I think most people's initial defense to it- You mean accept that it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. I think most people's initial defense to it is to say, that's not possible. Mm -hmm. 
But instead, we have a moment, right? Not only is it possible, but pretty much all of the major tech companies have huge investments and acquisitions that they've made in neurotechnology in the past few years. You know, whether it's Meta or Apple or Microsoft or Google, they all have made major acquisitions and investments into developing brain sensors that can be embedded into everyday technologies. Later this year, there are several multifunctional devices from earbuds to headphones that are launching that have pretty high accuracy for the things that they're measuring, Mm -hmm. attention, focus, engagement, these kinds of things. Uh, And so I think the starting place is for people to recognize the technology has arrived and it can do more than they think it can do. And the second is once you accept that jarring fact to realize we have a moment, it has not gone fully mainstream yet. It's being embedded into everyday technology, but rather than needing to wait five years from now and say, I'll worry about it when it's widespread. We have an opportunity right now to set the terms of service as to how these technologies are used to make a decision about what the default rules will be. And I've proposed a default rule, which is a right to cognitive liberty, a right to self-determination over our brains and mental experiences. And I spell that out in the book, both in terms of what the right looks like and what the updating of existing human rights looks like at the international stage, but also what that means to operate as if that right already exists in a corporate setting when governments are starting to use the technology for everything from biometrics to interrogations, what that means for the coming age of cognitive warfare, both informational warfare, but also intentionally trying to assault brains on battlefields and in ordinary interactions. And so I think it's it's really like kind of realize it's here, be part of the solution, and then start to integrate the terms of service demanding we have a say and a decision to make about how the technology is used. So like pretty much every technology, this is going to have horrible uses and great uses. And we, I guess we've sort of talked about both of them, but I mean, some of the great uses I can imagine are, for instance, therapy. Yeah. Right. Like if I, if, if you're a person that struggles with self-awareness and self-knowledge, which we all are to one degree or another, it's like, How much do you actually know what you're feeling in every moment and Mm -hmm. why you're feeling it? Mm -hmm. And um, where where do you work best? What time of day do you work best? When are you the most focused? When are you You the most creative? These questions are obvious because you're experiencing you, but But actually you can be wrong about what you're experiencing and certainly about why. And knowing and having just like a readout of what you're actually experiencing can be very useful. We also would end up treating brain health in the same way that we treat all of the rest of our health, right? I mean, right now, you know, I'm a chronic migrainer, you mm-hmm. know, so I've had brain scanning done, mm-hmm. particularly when I have like a really unusual pattern of chronic migraine that suddenly, you know, ends up looking something different. Like, is mm-hmm. it a brain tumor? Or is it something that's happening? Um, most people have not. Most people have never had a brain scan. Most people won't. Many times, you know, the neurodegenerative disorders aren't picked up until too late. Mental illnesses aren't picked up until much later. Depression oftentimes is picked up once a person is suffering from severe depression. You know, cognitive decline, sharpness, enhancement, all of these things, we treat it as if, you know, there's like a black box. You don't get to know 
anything that's happening with your brain activity and health. And if you had devices in your own hands that that both helped you to know a whole lot more about yourself, your biases, your work habits, a lot of things that you think you know, but you're wrong about, and you could track your own brain health, just like you track your heart rate and the number of steps you take per day. I think that could be revolutionary. I think it could be revolutionary for mental health. I I think it could be revolutionary for wellness if it's used as a tool of empowerment for people and not as a tool of surveillance by corporations and by governments. Mm. So finding that line, it would be tough because presumably when this tech gets really good, you want people to be able to choose to use this tech for the better. But once people can choose to use it, they can also choose to ask other people whether they're willing to use it to say, work for my business, right? Yeah. And I can say, listen, we're both adults over 18. Here's the deal. I don't have to employ you. You don't have to work for me. But if you choose to work for me, you choose to also submit to certain rules, one of which is you have to use this you know, future futuristic EEG machine, which reliably tells me what's going on inside your mind during the workday or at periodic review times. And I will like review your chart for the last three months and notice that you have been actually paying less attention at work lately by 20%. And here's the proof. And certain people may be whether desperate enough or simply because of their preferences, care less about their own privacy. They may, some people may be willing to submit to that kind of a thing. Most people will probably be creeped out by it, but one can imagine this may change between cultures, cultures, which are, which are already heavily surveilled, such as China are not necessarily people are kind of used to being surveilled by the government. They've been conditioned to think of that as normal, maybe less may be able to put up less resistance or may be inclined to put up less resistance because it's a cultural difference. Would your conception of like cognitive liberty, would it say to the corporation owner, no, you actually can't ask people to do that, yes. even if they consent to it? Yes, but. <clears throat> yes, but. Um, so, so first of all, let me, let me just say one thing, which is that's already happening. Right. I mean, what you describe is some futuristic scenario. There are already workplaces in China. There are already workplaces across Asia, not just in China, where that's already happening, where people are being told, like, we're using this neurotechnology in the workplace and we're using it to track your metrics. There uh, was a company that came up to me to talk to me after my recent talk about your brain in the workplace to say, like, we've been using that technology and testing it. And we're starting to sell it to our customers worldwide as an enterprise solution. It's given us really great insights about things like work from home policies versus work in the came office. Up to you? Yes. Did you handcuff them and say, I, <laughs> I put away scum like you every day? <laughs> you know, it was it, it goes back to wow. me saying, like, this is happening, mm-hmm. right? This isn't something that is futuristic. I'm not describing some science fiction scenario. This is happening to workers worldwide already. The question uh, about whether I, my right to cognitive liberty, as I as I define it, would prevent wor- workplaces from doing so, I say yes, but because if we recognize a right to cognitive liberty, that includes a right to mental privacy. A right to mental privacy means there has to be a legal bona fide exception to be able to get access to brain data. So an employer could say, I'm giving you this as a tool of empowerment, but if they want to get any of the data from that, the right to mental privacy would require they have a legally justifiable reason that is the least intrusive means to do so. So what does that mean in practice? A commercial driver who is 
you know, right now, if they're a truck driver, they have in camera, in cab cameras that are that are trained on their face and seeing whether or not they're falling asleep. There's driver assist technology and there's driver alert technology that's built in to pick up whether or not they're fatigued or falling asleep. There's a company called SmartCap that has sold thousands of these headsets worldwide that measure fatigue levels from the brain, just giving a score from one to five, right? About whether or not the person is wide awake or falling asleep and the levels in between. No other brain data is extracted and all of it is kept on device and overwritten. And the only score that a manager would see was that score one to five. The question is, could you come up with a legally justified exception in a case of a commercial driver to say, we're only going to test fatigue levels, we're not going to get any other data from the brain, and it's justified because they are a commercial driver where many lives are at stake when they are on the road. I think possibly, I think as a society, we may decide that cognitive liberty and the right to mental privacy in limited circumstances with limited data that's collected can be justified in a situation like that. We might decide, no, we might decide that's not a legally justified exception. But that's the kind of thing that cognitive liberty would do because mental privacy isn't absolute. It's a relative interest between societal interest and individual interest, but it does change the default rules Mm -hmm. about what it is that an employer can do. The default rules are no and less. So it's interesting because in some ways we've already breached all of these questions with, you know, Facebook and Google selling our data. Yes. I mean, we know that Facebook and Google and all of these big tech companies, certainly TikTok, and this is apparent by the very fact of how good TikTok's algorithm is at showing you quickly finding out which content you respond to is just by how long you take scrolling on something, right? Millisecond differences in your attention can create a pretty good profile of what you want and at some level how you're feeling or at least how that relates to what products you're most likely to buy. And Facebook has been able to do that for years to a degree that was very surprising when it first came out, that it can tell if you are going into a depressive episode or if you're someone with bipolar and you have you know mood swings and mania, it can potentially tell when you're going into an upswing or a downswing. And, and that's without any direct access to your brain signals, right? right. And Largely, in my opinion, society's reaction to that and even my own reaction to that has been somewhat apathetic in the sense that we are not as outraged by that as probably we should be. And that's an interesting fact to consider, our own apathy about that and how that may translate to a world with a widespread frequent use of EEG technology. Do you think the fact that it's more physical and it's sort of potentially touching your head will trigger people's instinctive, like, get off of my body reaction and that we won't be apathetic? Or do you fear that we'll have pretty much the same attitude that we have towards big tech knowing all about us and selling our data? Probably a little bit of both. So first of all, I'd say, as I conceive of it, the right to cognitive liberty should cover more than just neurotech touching your forehead, right? It should include all the ways in which people are trying to both get into your brain and manipulate your brain. Um, And we ought to figure out which of those practices, really precise algorithms are permissible and impermissible. We ought to to claw back some of those rights and include a broader definition of cognitive liberty. But when it comes to brain data, I think it depends on how well people understand it and how well it, it becomes normalized. So 
when I've done studies through my lab to try to understand if people would react differently to brain data, people regularly rated their social security number is more sensitive than their brain data. And I think that's because people don't really understand what you can decode from that information. But when I shared the dystopian video about the future of work where brain data could be collected, you know, I'd say the reaction was much stronger than I ever expected it it would be, which I actually find incredibly encouraging in some ways, even though I got a lot of death threats and, you know, other misdirected, I think, anger at me of mm. revealing to people what's happening. What, um, oh, was, were the death threats just a misunderstanding? Like yeah, you were they were just earlier. a misunderstanding. They I mean, thought people, you people, wanted this dystopia. They, they thought okay. I was like advocating that right. that's what should be happening in workplaces instead of sounding the alarm of like, this is what could be coming and, right. you know, we need to safeguard against it. And so I'd say the death threats weren't encouraging, but what was encouraging was how strongly people reacted to it, that mm -hmm. visceral reaction to it, I hope carries through. What I worry about is that part of what makes normalization so likely and that people become comfortable, even like in the beginning, they're startled that the algorithm is so precise, and then they just stay on the platforms or they buy the products that are precisely targeted to them. The reason consumer neurotechnology is, is grown up now and is going mainstream is because the sensors are embedded into everyday devices, into watches, into earbuds mm. that you're already listening to music, into headphones that you're already taking conference calls mm. from. So maybe at the first moment, people notice and react to it, but then they're taking their conference calls and they're listening to their music. And it's just like the heart rate sensor on the watch. Right. They're already wearing the devices. It's not something new they have to put onto their body. It's just one more sensor that's tracking activity. That's what I worry about is the blind spot people develop where they initially are worried about it, but then it becomes so normalized in their everyday life and hidden from their view that they forget about it and forget and give up so much of their privacy and rights as a result. Well, that will be the first thing that big tech does when this technology, if and when this technology is sufficiently advanced to be put in an, in an iPhone app or something. It was like, we, we already have these apps that... You... It is an iPhone app. So I'm just going to call you oh, out again ahead, on your ahead. skepticism, Sorry. right? Sorry. I no, mean, yeah, yeah. like... <laughs> uh, like, uh, you know, we have these apps that I put it on my bed at night and it's, it's going to give me as much possible information about my sleep that I didn't know about. Yes. So do we have the app slash will we have the app that is just on all day in the background, like the equivalent of the health app that's looking at my steps and is just looking at my EEG waves or, or my, my electrical system signal and giving me all this information that can be mapped and patterned and looked at just like 16 hours of waking life every day for years. Yeah. I mean, so to the extent that people start using the wearable tattoos, for example, these are tiny, mm. go right behind the ear, mm. right? I mean, that, that's continuous monitoring and enables you to interact with the rest of your technology seamlessly, but also just all day, every day, pick up your brain activity. Some companies have even correlated the pattern of heart rate activity through the ECG monitor. They have apps that then also test your engagement and immersion from a brain activity perspective through that already. That's already being worn by many people 24 hours a day. But there's no remote monitoring of your brain, right? So like with your with your phone, it has like an accelerometer in it. It can, if you have it with you, even if it's not touching you, right? If it's in your purse or something, it can it can go along with you and keep your GPS location. There's nothing like that for the brain where it will remotely monitor brain activity without your awareness or choosing something to have on you, whether that's a headband or 
you know, a sensor behind your ear, inside your ear, over your ears. But Mm -hmm. there are many people like me, I've got earbuds or headphones on most of my day at Mm -hmm. work. The idea that most of my day, my brain activity could be monitored through those is already a reality. So what role does does AI play in this? Because it seems to me what we've discovered over the past few years is that with machine learning and deep learning based on big data, basically that we can... If you can feed millions of data points into modern day AI tech, which is trained to find patterns between any set of variables, you can achieve, in many cases, superhuman level of competence at understanding that function. That's been true for chess uh, for decades. It's now true for language it's probably going to be true for music soon, I think, with Music LM, which is at an earlier stage, but on mm-hmm. the same path, in my view. Mm-hmm. It's true for art mm-hmm. with Dolly 2 and Mid Journey. So I'm imagining really complex EEG data. So not just like the little tattoo or whatever, like the real full complex EEG data linked up to exactly what is going on for the person during that data. So I guess just to take one example, EEG data of me while I'm speaking right now. Yep. Right. And now multiply that by millions of different humans speaking while collecting complex EEG data. Right. And you feed that into a machine learning, a deep learning AI, which is now going to work its black box magic to understand and correlate brain states with human speech. Right. Is it possible that on the other side of that, there is just an AI that understands like basically the architecture of human thought simply by looking at the EEG data? It's kind of a terrifying thought in some ways, right? Right. Um, But I'm not sure in principle why it wouldn't be possible. Yeah. So, um, So first let me say, what you've just described is how we have gotten to the place where these little headsets can do as much as they can, which is on hundreds of thousands of recordings using medical grade EEG, which have then been correlated to the data with consumer grade EEG. So you take whole brain readings using, and whole brain being whole surface electrode brain readings from EEG, and then try to figure out what are you picking up on the earbuds and on the headphones and which how does it correlate? Which is a lower correlate? resolution thing. Which is lower resolution oh, and fewer electrodes. But I that's see. how they've trained it is they, mm. they've done huge machine learning data sets on brain readings. Mm. And then they've done the same activities, for example, with headsets and with earbuds. And then the same patterns could then be correlated into these smaller devices. But that's not what you were asking. So so let me go to what you're asking, which is the bigger question. The whole of human experience, I don't think is going to be captured by EEG. And and I say that because yes, without a doubt, we're going to be, you know, as consumer brain wearables go mainstream, we're going to have millions to billions of brain recordings of people who have healthy brains in their everyday life going about their everyday activity. And if that data is all used as training data for AI and all of the rest of the information, which is already being commodified, like what are you looking at on your phone at the time at which Mm. the you know, headset is being used. Are you walking or not? What's your accelerometer and your GPS location is picking up from your iPhone and all of that's correlated and fed into AI, then it can learn a whole lot about the human experience, which isn't reduced to writing 
which is what's currently being fed into AI to train AI to come up with things like ChatGPT and generative AI and all of the rest of them that you mentioned in art and music and every other domain. And so much of the way human thought and experience is captured in the brain will become training data eventually for AI. And and can that lead to even more powerful generative AI models without a doubt? And will that be some of the training data that leads to AI? Without a doubt, neural networks are a form of how generative AI and how ML have been developed. And those are based on how the brain works and theories of how the brain works. So, So yes is the short answer, but I think no matter how powerful surface electrodes are, they don't get at the full depth of the human inner mo- monologue and right. inner experience. So all of that doesn't become training data. So, now, implanted they, AI, I mean, implanted EEG, maybe. Right? right. Implanted electrodes will also become much more mainstream. But I guess uh, presumably there's a lot of what goes on in the human mind that has no clear behavior associated with it. It's just what you're feeling. Yeah. Just what you're thinking. Right. And all those things have associated brain states. But if there's not, if there's no Y to correlate with the X, then it's like, well, but, but, but that's, right? I don't think so. Right. Because suppose, like, so, suppose so like, what suppose you're like, experiencing is like, you're having an inner monologue, mm-hmm. right. But your outer monologue of speech creation is something that has been decoded through right. AI. Right? right. Can that be used to accurately correlate what your inner monologue Maybe. is? Right. Maybe, especially if the parts of your brain that like the motor cortex, which you use to form speech is also used in imagining speech right. or your visual cortex where you, you know, see images uh, when you're dreaming, those images show up in the visual cortex too. That's part of how <laughs> a lot of dreaming and dream states have been decoded is right. it's using the same structures in the brain. So when you're having a purely inner monologue, is that really beyond the realm of decoding when you can decode everything else that looks the same when it's been expressed? I don't think so. I think it's, so, I mean, I think it makes all of that accessible too. So what you're describing there is true, deep mind reading, right? Yes. That's true mind reading when we can have, you know, 99.9% confidence after hooking you up that you're thinking right now, oh, I'm hungry. I'd love to get a steak after this podcast or something like that, right? Yeah. As opposed to decoding right now, hunger, right? right? And so already I could tell hunger, Mm-hmm. But the I want a steak part of it, you know, you can't. Right. Um, now, you might be able to pick that up from my prior preferences and all of the rest of my buying behavior. And if you've commodified all of the rest of my data, you know, I, I like steak. And so you're able to both tell I'm hungry, know what my prior preferences are and precisely market to me steak. But you can already do the basic mind reading of hunger, the more complex, what you call true mind reading of mm. I'm hungry, I want a steak, the complete sentence you can't do right now, at least not with consumer-based EEG, right. right? My intention to speak, if I have implanted electrodes, the that has become remarkably accurate where people can have real-time speech prosthesis. They've lost the ability to speak. They have electrodes that are deeper in the brain. There are thousands of electrodes rather than a few. Those are being used to allow people who have lost the commu- ability to communicate otherwise to accurately communicate their thoughts. Does this have, I mean, this is, I'm now imagining completely, well, you tell me if it's completely science fiction. Every time I tell you something's completely sci-fi, you say we're already doing it. So so does this have a security theater TSA application? Is it like, can can we? Sure. And yes, we're doing it. You want me to tell you what it is? (laughs) All right. 
So actually more than a decade ago, it was um, the like TSA worked with what, what used to be Northwest Airlines um, to try to figure out if they could pick up neural signatures and, and do any kind of remote decoding mm -hmm. as part of a TSA feature. There's too much noise and too much interference to do that. Meaning if you're trying to pick up electro magnetic signals or elect, you know, electrical signals from the brain and you're in an airport with a huge number of other signals, it's very difficult to pick right. it up. But turns out that, you know, biometrics, as you know, are a huge part of what the TSA and other places use to authenticate people. I was startled. I, I went to, um, to Switzerland recently and I walked up to the gate and they said, oh, no, we don't need your passport or your boarding pass. Just stand in front of the camera. And the camera scanned my face and popped up my seat number and information and a check mark mm. that I could board because they have all of your facial recognition and other mm. information as biometrics that are being used. Well, a lot of biometrics, static biometrics, like your face, even your thumbprint can be faked. And so it's concerning as a security measure. So there's been this move to look at functional biometrics. Like when you are doing CAPTCHA phrases, it's really about how you move. It's not what you answer. And there's a pattern of how you move that is more predictive of of whether you're a human or a robot rather than the answer itself. So you're saying when it, I, when it asked me to identify every picture with a red light in it, with a light in it or whatever, the, it's not actually, it doesn't actually care whether I'm getting it right. It cares how I'm moving. It also cares how you, if you get it right, but mm -hmm. it's, it's looking, <clears throat> capture is generally looking at movements mm -hmm. and human functional movements mm -hmm. as opposed to the way in which a robot or an automated system solves things. Right. And functional biometrics look for something similar. So if you sing, like, think of your favorite song. What's your favorite song? Uh, I don't know. Am I going to get you in trouble for saying your favorite song? So think of, <laughs> you can think of it in <laughs> your head. I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't force you to reveal um, it. God's Plan by Drake is a great song. Okay. So if I sing God's Plan by Drake in my mm -hmm. head and you sing it in your head, mm -hmm. your unique neural signature of singing your favorite song even if it's exactly the same words, we start in the same place, looks different than mine does. And if I have a consumer headset on you and I say, okay, sing your favorite song, you do it. And I record that, then I want to authenticate that it's really you. If I tried to sing God's Plan by Drake in my head using the consumer headset, it would not unlock the computer or whatever the device was. But if you did, it would because neural signatures are unique, at least for authentication. And even so, more unique than thumbprints or even more unique than thumbprints. And mm. it may be, it may be, we don't know, but it may be the most unique functional biometric there is. And so governments have been investing a huge amount of money into developing functional biometrics around brain biometrics to see if they can use that as kind of the most secure form of authentication. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, so in theory, could it just be speaking my name? while hooked up to my EEG, yeah. like that's my password or, and it won't be, cause it's not like you can imitate my voice. Maybe you can record my voice. You can, right. whatever. But anything, that, anything that, anything that is expressed, including your face. Yeah. Right. But you know, and you can change the song every time in your head, you can hmm. consistently have a different neural signature, but it's just, you know, you don't have to remember your crazy password with the dashes and the capital right. and the lowercase and all that kind of nonsense. Is it, is it possible that my being in a different mood would make me seem not like me? Not for singing your favorite song, but if we were looking How for static, that? because singing your favorite song still has a characteristic pattern of firing of neurons in your brain, hmm. even if you're happy or sad. 
but what you're describing is more of a static neural signature. So one of the earlier ways that people were trying to figure out if you could do neural signatures was looking at your unique connectome, the way your brain is kind of hooked up. And that may vary based on what mood you're in, Mm -hmm. like trying to map static brain activity as opposed to you performing a specific task is not as effective. It's not as accurate for authenticating you. Interesting. So, um, Will we <laughs> You're like, to... I don't want to ask anyone because I'll be like, know. you know. <laughs> We're gonna, are we going to finally be able to take our shoes off, stop taking our shoes off at the TSA? If I let you in my mind, can I keep my shoes? Are you not going through a pre-check? You don't have to take your shoes no, off anymore. I don't anymore. have pre-check. I, oh. I need, I need you to need get, get pre-check. Then you don't have to take your shoes access, off. access, pre-check, all of these things. Okay. I was so... tempted today to get clear because um, I noticed that somehow clear has come up with the ability to even cut in front of pre-check. Like all clear seems to be is like some paid ticket to cut in front of and line in front of everybody else. Interesting. So I looked it up. Do they lower the price of pre-check once they create this newer first, first class or do they just keep that price? the same? No, they keep it the same. And and, I mean, what's, I would love to know what the back channels of like how this is developed because Mm -hmm. it seems like, you know, it's not pre-check is government clear, I think is a private corporation, but somehow they've cut a deal with TSA where it allows people just for a fee to cut the line. Um, and it's biometrics is the validation system for, mm. for clear. It's been a while since I did my global entry interview, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that I did biometrics at my interview for, for that at well, as well. I think there were like fingerprints and facial recognition, at least. You can imagine a future system where giving the man, the system, whatever, a lot of EEG data yep. is the... Ticket. Is the ticket into whatever level. Yeah. I mean, so we, we haven't talked about one of the kind Which of- Which will be very difficult for a lot of people to resist. It will be. And and then, of course, there's the risk at, in more authoritarian governments that it's the ticket for being free at all, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of studies have ticket been- Ticket for citizenship, maybe? Well, worse than that. So it's, it's kind of loyalty oaths, mm-hmm. like go back to, you know, old McCarthy era loyalty oaths. A lot of studies have been done to figure out if you can figure out the, the neural correlates through EEG of political ideology, like who are you going to vote for? Uh, are you more likely to be conservative or liberal? And supposedly even, you know, do you believe in the political ideology of the, you know, communist party or do you not? And probing people's brainwave activity when they have mandatory headsets that are on to see whether or not they, you know, truly believe or, or adherence mm-hmm. to the, you know, communist party. Right. That's the kind of frightening applications that reportedly are already happening. Reportedly where? Newspapers, right? So th- there's, it's hard to get any accurate information out of China. But mm-hmm. if you look at some of the news reports, including the ones that talk about the workers using the technology in the workplace or the Wall Street Journal that did reporting of students and classrooms being required to wear them, same kinds of investigative reporting has shown that at least there may be some of that kind of political ideology testing that's happening as well. Interesting. So I wonder how self-deception plays into this because presumably some people are able to actually deceive themselves into believing things that they can't really believe or passing lie detector tests because temporarily they have assumed the state of someone who believes that. And these are obviously the most effective liars and manipulators are the people that believe their own bullshit. And I think also to some extent, everyone can get caught up in a little bit believing their own bullshit, but there's certain people that really can seem to be able to snap into that state. And um, I call them politicians, but I mean, obviously that is a big 
if you can if you can really be made to feel like something is true, then you can pass our intuitive lie detector sort of systems. Presumably, would you also be able to pass any kind of next generation mind reading tech? So I'm going to give you a sideways answer to that in part. Um, So fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging, which can peer more deeply into the brain, but looks at blood flow levels for a while maybe a decade ago, it was kind of all the hype that that was going to be the new lie detection. Mm-hmm. Um, and the theory was that it's more cognitive load to tell a lie than it is to tell the truth. Turned out for those best liars, no more blood flow <laughs> required to tell the truth and to tell a lie. Um, I was put into an fMRI as part of a research study out of Stanford where they were trying to test for recognition. So it was like images that I had seen Previously, they wanted to then test to see whether they could pick up that recognition memory from my brain. And then I was told to actively try to deceive the system and to see whether or not, despite my actively trying to deceive the system, like, no, no, I've never seen it, if I could bring down the accuracy of how well it could detect it. And I could bring down the accuracy of how well it could detect it by trying to think about a pink elephant or, Mm. you know, like have active mind distraction techniques when I know that my brain is being probed. So if you know that the test is being undertaken, it may be possible to beat a lie detector in the same way that people beat a lie detector when they use other physiological responses. But I think you have to think about it a slightly different way. So recently, in a few criminal cases, Fitbit data was used to try to undercut an alibi or to prove that when a person said that they were asleep, that they were really actually physically active at the time. And if we're passively wearing neurotechnology throughout the day, and you can do things like flash up images on a computer screen without a person realizing it to probe and get information over the person's brain without their awareness... I think it may be possible that those kinds of like bypass when you know that you're being interrogated, that's not going to be the case. You're going to have passive collection of data from the brain that you could use against a person Mm. as a more accurate way of doing so. That's still not lie detection the way you're describing it, right? Which is like asking a person yes, no questions and seeing whether or not they're lying or telling the truth. But it is intercepting information that can be used to convict them or to use to discover what the truth is of the situation. Very interesting. So I'm I'm curious if there will be if you think there would be any applications of of this technology to say prove that you love somebody, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, this is the age old joke is like prove to me that you love your wife scientifically, and it can't be done. And this is a point in service of the idea that science is not what what is measured by science is not all that there is, not all that there that that, that matters. What happens if a couple gets in a dispute and maybe one thinks one cheated on the other? Is there is there a way that this tech gets so good that I say, look, submit me to the mind reading. I love you. I did not cheat on you. Do you think that would be an application and there would be a service for that? Will it bother you if I tell you it's already been done? Oh, <laughs> fucking God. All right. So, so first, let me say, um, like more than a decade ago now, there was a researcher who who was really interested and she ran this this experiment. By the way, I'm, don't tell my girlfriend this. All right, all right. I'm I will not, not letting her listen not. to this podcast. Yes. No, she's not allowed to listen. There was an experiment that she ran to like put couples into an fMRI and would show them images of the 
partner mm-hmm. and be able to tell from the kind of neural correlates, the fMRI function, whether the person, whether there was real love or, mm-hmm. or lust based on mm-hmm. what we see as the distinctions between them. Oh, and it had like a really interesting emotional experience for people when, you know, the, their brains did not show love and their brain showed lust or, you know, no love at all or something like that, mm-hmm. or love for an ex-boyfriend and not uh-huh. for, you know, the current person. So, you know, that, that, that kind of thing is, is, is possible. And then on the somehow, somehow that's scarier than any other feature of the dystopia you've described in the past. Well, I'm going to make it scarier. Can I do that for you? Yeah. (laughs) So the, like, I will submit to the test. That's how the P300 test has been used in the U S is where a criminal defendant will say, no, no, like I really wasn't there. I really was like, you can show me all the images you want. I like, I wasn't at the crime scene. My alibi is true. And then using probes to try to prove that. Right. And so incongruence, the N400 that we're talking about, there are ways to do that. This kind of like interrogation of truth or not with like appropriately created probes. And if it's already happened in the criminal justice system and you can do already distinctions between love and lust and other feelings that have neural correlates that can be picked up through EEG and other, you know, FNIRs, we haven't even talked about fMRI, other modalities. Yeah. I mean, we can do that. Jesus Christ. Now, should we do it? Right. I mean, no, like that's not how we should define our relationships. That's not how, you know, people should work through their breakups or their relationships. Like part of what I think is so important for people to realize is this technology really is going to fundamentally change what it means to be human, what it means to relate to one another. Right. The questions that you're asking about like how much does a person know about themselves? How much can you learn about another person? Most of that has been through what we've chosen to share with other people. Now, some of it not, right? Some of it is you can make inferences and, you know, your your data is being commodified so that corporations can figure out things about you that you wouldn't want to share with other people. But your most intimate relationships are based on what you choose to share with other people and the development of that kind of intimate sharing and vulnerability with another person. And this could redefine a lot of that and really be transformational in ways that we should be paying attention to. This is really, this has been a wake up call for me of, uh, of how much is already going on and how much is, is likely to go on in terms of inching towards deep mind reading technology and all the implications of that. I think people will really enjoy this conversation. Thank you for your time. The book once more is called The Battle for your brain. And I encourage you all to pick up a copy. And if there's anything else you want to plug, a Twitter handle, a website, now would be the time. They can follow me at Nita Farahani. And my website is nitafarahani.com. Keep it all simple. Right. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Nita. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.